According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. I looked everywhere to find a missionary for this morning. And uh, I'm teasing. It's just been a couple of weeks. Uh, we, we were very blessed, and I don't regret it at all. We had two Sundays in a row. Uh, Fassel was here two weeks ago, and Mario was here last week. And so it has been. It's been uh, three weeks now since we were last in the book of Hebrews. So we want to pick up where we left it, because we left it uh, somewhere very, very precious. And uh, there is truth here that we want to embrace and never let go, uh, particularly truth that uh, lends itself to some twisting and some misapplication. There are folks uh, on opposite ends of the theological spectrum, Calvinists and Arminians alike, that uh, will use the same verses to scare the same people uh, for different reasons. But uh, we want to have, it's, it's our Bible too, and we, uh, we're going to hold these passages to what they say and not inject what our theology uh, wants them to say. And uh, you'll see what I mean as we look at each of these. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you just so thankful. Thankful for your faithfulness. Thankful for your your help, Father. And uh, we do raise our Ebenezer, Father. You are the, the rock of help. And I thank you this morning that your help will provide for us to understand the truth of your word, that uh, the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we call upon your faithfulness to take these passages and make them clear that we would be blessed, even by the very verses that some folks try to, try to scare us with. Uh, let us be blessed by these faithful, faithful promises. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we are in chapter 3 and looking at verses 7 through 11, we're dealing with a quotation that comes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And so we have uh, some back and forth that we've been doing and will likely continue to do. But the point is, is that historically the Jewish people could use their own heritage as the example. That any Jewish person living in the land of promise would be able to point back to the Exodus generation who were brought out of the land of Egypt but never were allowed to enter into the land of promise. It was delayed until the subsequent, the wilderness generation then, 40 years later, they were blessed under Joshua's leadership to enter into the land of promise or the land of rest. And so we want to understand how it is that in Psalm 95, during David's day, you know, 400 years later, that example was still being used and continues to be used by the first century. By the time we get to the New Testament, we have principles that are found. It's not only Jewish people that can use a Jewish heritage to give them their application, but the church. The church can use Israel's illustration. And the Apostle Paul does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He uses the Exodus generation as his his example and uses that as a warning for the church. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. He quotes Psalm 95 but points back to the Exodus generation and says that's the example for the church. And uh, we want to be clear on this. And so we've been looking at this. Um, It says, therefore verse 7, just as 
the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So the Exodus generation did what they did, but beyond all that, there is a daily application to be made. When the people of God hear the voice of God, it then becomes our test. Do we listen? Do we open our ears? Do we humble ourselves? Or do we harden our hearts? Do we not listen? Do we close it out? And that's a daily battle. And uh, you and I need to decide. And, and uh, you know, here I am, I'm preaching to the choir because I'm preaching a message before believers who chose to assemble on the Lord's day. And uh, the people that needed to hear this are the ones that had other things to do today that are not assembling to receive instruction. And yet today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. For 40 years, God was faithful. He never stopped being faithful. He was never unfaithful. He was faithful beyond everything. And in every test, 10 times they put him to the test. And each step of the way, he stayed faithful. And uh, they had that witness. And yet, did they ever repent? Was there ever a point that they they uh, re- uh, repented and, and sought to enter into the land after they were told they couldn't? They never once did. They just surrendered and said, oh, well, this is, this is what it is, and they died in the wilderness to let uh, their children enter in. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always or continuously go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." It was, not, it was more than a simple re- single rebellion at Kadesh Barnea that cost them the land of rest. That was started there, but it was 40 years after that, that that continuous rebellion, the continuous grumbling, the continuous testing the Lord, the continuous provocation. It says, they provoked me. And uh, so we have that. We'll get to more of this when we get down to verses 16 and following. Let me just... Uh, uh, highlight it here. Uh, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. It is a provocation and a continuous repeated provocation. And uh, verses 16 through 19 that ends the chapter there continues to communicate that as well. Who provoked him when they had heard? You realize that? Israel, a redeemed people. And so what's the parallel? does, Does God get provoked by unbelievers? Or does God get provoked by believers? A redeemed people who should know better. A redeemed people who are not walking by the standard of the Word of God. And the God who redeemed them, the God who called them, the God who delivered them, the God who did everything necessary to not only get them saved, to bring them out of bondage, but to bring them through the wilderness and to put them in the land of promise. And yet they fail. They provoke Him. And that's the application and admonishment for us because we're all saved people. We're all a redeemed people. We're all a people who should be listening to what is being said day by day. And when we provoke Him, then the, uh, the wrath is coming to us as well. We will not enter into our rest, the rest that, that is designed for us in the church age. And that's what we're going to start seeing here in these verses. So, as we deal with it. 
Uh, I want to highlight some things. And uh, three weeks ago, this is where we were uh, in verse 10, uh, identifying that the anger of God was applied generationally based primarily upon Israel's hard-hearted ignorance. And uh, we have it. We have it here. We have it in Psalm 78, verses 40 and following. We have it in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. Very frequently, God administers wrath on a generational basis. And uh, whatever it is that tips the scale, whatever it is that marks a generation as apostate, whatever it is, if, if had there been 10 righteous, it would have spared Sodom. All right, so whatever it is in that generation, in that day, and uh, the application is generational. When he brings down the hand of, of judgment on a people group, it's going to hit that entire people group in that day and age. Those that were alive to see it, they're going to see it. They're going to experience it. This is why it says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You know, if you're if you're in Sodom when Sodom gets destroyed, it's going to happen. Okay. Uh, the 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 angel might get you out of there, like got Lot out of there. But if you're still in there when the when the judgment falls, whether you're saved or not, it's going to hit. Like Noah's flood, unless you're inside the ark, you're going to perish. That was the nature of that judgment on that generation. Noah and his sons uh, survived, and their wives. Anyway, the anger of God was applied generationally, and that's a consideration when you look around and you ask yourself, what about this generation? What about this coming generation? What about the next generation? Is God well pleased with this generation of the United States of America? Or is this a generation that continuously goes astray in their hearts? Will they pay attention to doctrine? Is this a generation that's positive to the teaching of the Word of God? Or is this a generation that's sold out to the postmodernism of the anti-Bible worldview? All right, just rhetorical, don't have to answer that. Generational dealings are seen throughout Scripture. And you see that, I think it is a curious thing to me, in Genesis 15, 16, generational dealings. We talk about the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God's uh, patience only lasts so long. He is slow to anger, but He eventually gets there. All right? He is slow to anger, but there is a time when that wrath is then poured forth should repentance not take place. So God tells Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then... In the fourth generation, you see that? See, God keeps track. He counts. In the fourth generation, they will return here. Now, why is it four generations of slavery? What's going on? There's a plan for the Jews. There's a plan for the Egyptians. But there's also a plan for the Canaanites. And he is being merciful with the Canaanites. He's in the fourth generation. You, uh, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay? And God is being very patient and being very merciful, such as what he does with Nineveh, and he sends them Jonah, and Nineveh repents. And then 150 years later, again it's Nineveh, sends them um, uh, Nahum, and 
Nineveh doesn't repent, all right? It reaches that time for God's wrath and national destruction. But he's dealing with them generationally. And he counts to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. And then he counts to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's what we have to look forward to. A thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. In Exodus 1.6, we've got the dealings with the uh, generation of those coming out of Egypt. Genesis, Exodus 1.6. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So what happens when a generation is gone, when no one remains? What happens when there's no more World War II veterans? What happens when there's no more, you know, we, we see a generation passing. There's no more uh, of anyone that remembers the uh, the De- Great Depression, or what happens when we lose the last living World War II service member, and uh, and so forth. God is tracking the generations, and He deals with people groups on that basis. Numbers thirty-two, thirteen, Deuteronomy seven, nine. I know it's been three weeks, but uh, and we've seen these, but just to get back up to speed and back in this frame of mind. Um, Numbers 32, 13. And so, you know, ask yourself, <laughs> what generation am I a part of? You know, am I a baby boomer? Am I a Gen X? Am I a millennial? What, what am I? And where do I fit? And what is the impact I'm supposed to have in my generation? What is my salt and light and is it working? <laughs> or is the hammer about to fall and I'm the rain's going to fall on the just and the unjust. I need to know that. Am I a remnant about to uh, suffer uh, the undeserved suffering of what my generation is getting in a very deserved way? Numbers 32.13. Got a slow page flipper this morning. There it is. And uh, the Lord's anger burned in that day, verse 10, and He swore, saying, none of them, and He swore. Okay? That doesn't mean he cussed. That means he took a vow. The God who cannot lie is putting himself under a solemn vow. Saying, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward. Why did he pick that number? I don't know, but that seems to be a number that fixes itself on generational accountability. If you're still a irresponsible teenager, God has some slack. But from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully. You see, if you're just going to play games with it and be a fence sitter, follow them a little bit when it's convenient, but still, you know, have one foot in the world and be having fun and carnality. Um, If you don't follow fully, you're not following. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. He knows how to get Lot out of Sodom and he knows how to get Caleb and Joshua into the promised land. <laughs> okay, And uh, there, there can be exceptions to the rule, but pray for that. And pray that God in His mercy might uh, get you out of Sodom when the, when the hammer falls. And He deals generationally. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil on the side of the Lord was destroyed. I think Moses was among the last, if not the last, to, uh, to die. He took him up to the mountain. He got to see it from a distance on Mount Pisgah, and then he died. And the Lord buried him, and Joshua took it from there. Deuteronomy 7, 9. 
Deuteronomy 7, 9. This is a good one too because this mentions the wrath of God to the third and to the fourth generation and then the chesed of God. So the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept His oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, they were the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't deserve to be redeemed out of slavery, right? Do we deserve to be delivered out of our slavery? Who among us deserves to be saved? And yet there's a covenant, there's a promise. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world has agreed to be the kinsman redeemer. And even when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, there was a promise that the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head and he would be the solution to uh, Adam's fall. And so uh, this is it. So know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Anyway, there's the promise there. He's counting the generations, up to a thousand of them, specifically. And that's what I'm speaking on, the thousand generations at the uh, Schaefer Conference this, uh, this March. In fact, one month and one week from tomorrow. Um, Acts 13.36. Acts 13.36. This is curious to me. What an epitaph. This ought to be on our tombstones. It says, David, see, David's the author here of Psalm 16, but he's not the subject of Psalm 16. It's Christ. David is not the one that was promised would not undergo decay. Christ is the one that would not undergo decay. And so as, as Paul's preaching this, he says, tell you what, you know, David wrote Psalm 16, but he died and he's still dead. <laughs> Okay. Um, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And so that's the application there. But David, when he served the purpose of God in his own generation, think about that. Think about what we're doing here and now. And what are we doing? And when will that work be accomplished? And when will the Father call us home? And uh, we better be preparing the next generation to follow us in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, in the Word of God. It's a thing to think about. God deals with generational dealings. All right. And then to verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's two halves of this verse we've got to deal with. My wrath, my rest. Okay. It's a beautiful contrast. In fact, this is the basis for uh, Mark Muster's book. Have you read Mark Muster's book? No one has read Mark Muster's book. Good, because I'm stealing a lot of Mark Muster's stuff in teaching the book of Hebrews. Mark is a great pastor friend of mine in Washington State. He wrote a commentary on Hebrews. It's called Wrath or Rest, right? It's called Wrath or Rest. Choose you this day which, uh, which you want to sign up for, okay? Wrath 
or rest. And that's what it's about. And specifically, my wrath versus my rest. And uh, we want to highlight this here starting now. As I swore in my wrath. Remember, the God who cannot lie, he has three circumstances in which he takes a vow. The God who cannot lie has three circumstances in which he takes a vow. They're all presented in the Old Testament and they're all cited in the book of Hebrews. It is a dominant theme for the author of Hebrews and he uses it, he impresses it upon his audience. I believe uh, converted priests, that the recipients of Hebrews were originally Levitical priests that got saved, that entered into the church age as New Testament believers. All right. But whomever the audience is, they're clearly Jewish, and the author here is using the Hebrew example. So the God who cannot lie has three circumstances in which he takes a vow. All three are affirmed in Scripture. First of all, to Abraham. He makes a vow to Abraham. And he makes that vow in Genesis 22. It's cited, in fact, it's dealt with at great length in Hebrews chapter 6. So um, Genesis 22 a foundational chapter. I think the, um, the blessings of this you think your way through Genesis in chapter 21 Isaac is born in chapter 22 God says kill him. <laughs> Alright? Seriously? I waited 100 years to have a baby and now you want me to kill him? And here's, the, here's the, uh, the covenant, here's the promise, here's the vow. And it's a beautiful thing. The offering of Isaac in this chapter, and, and if we're familiar with the story, we don't have to read the whole chapter, but um, Abraham by faith is, is willing to do it until the Lord shouts out from heaven. Uh, the angel of the Lord calls him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I think in verse 10, he stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, the stretching out of the hand. I mean, literally, was that hand in a forward motion when the voice of God stopped him? Um, seems like it. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And this is the thing. Now, he's got an older son, but that's irrelevant as far as the Abrahamic covenant is concerned. Isaac is the monogenes, the one of a kind, the uniquely begotten son, that um, the miraculous provision for Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And so this is how it gets the name the Lord will provide. This is now Jehovah Jireh. And there's a substitute, okay? There's a substitute so Isaac doesn't have to die. And that's, uh, that's our gospel message right there. Guess what? There's a substitute so you don't have to die and go to hell. And uh, there is a provision. And that's uh, our Savior, of course, who went to the cross. So, um, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He says, now it's time for some doctrine. And he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now the God who cannot lie, who's previously given this covenant anyway, is now going to restate it under the language of an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Monogenes, only begotten son. It's the same language as John 3.16. 
Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. So he's got a heavenly seed and he's got an earthly seed. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so here is the final statement of the Abrahamic covenant here to Abraham. And it's stated with an oath. Well, what, what do we read in Hebrews 6? In Hebrews 6, this is a big deal, okay? It's not just your goofy pastor who's overstressing something and you say, come on, pastor, relax a bit about it. Is it really that big a deal? Well, the author of Hebrews thought so. And the Holy Spirit put it in Scripture. Hebrews 6.13, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater... He swore by himself. Isn't that great? I mean, what else is he going to do? <laughs> we go to court, we put our hand on a Bible, we read, so help me God. Well, what's God going to do, right? So help me me, or, you know, it's, uh, he is the ultimate. He is the I am. But the fact that he does this to swear by himself has a huge impact on the author of Hebrews here, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit into our Bibles, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And you think about that, he gives this covenant in 2000 B.C. and earlier, maybe even 23 B.C. or 2200 B.C. There's flexibility on our Abrahamic and Isaac dating, but in any event, it's over 2000 years until Jesus comes along when the seed of Abraham fulfills the uh, where the, the Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Yeah, the Lord will provide and there is no other ram in the thicket. Jesus has to go to the cross. There is no substitute. He is the substitute and it costs him his son. The father has to do what he spared uh, Abraham from doing. And that's, uh, that's extraordinary. Um, Verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is the end of every dispute. I mean, that oath ends it. If he is faithless, if he is violating his oath, there are severe consequences based upon the objects that are brought to witness on this oath. Um, You know, when he says, as I live, declares the Lord, that means if I violate this oath, I'm not living. Kill me now. So in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. So He takes this step so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And you think in this... Some Armenian comes along and says you can lose your salvation. Are you kidding me? You realize this? The God who cannot lie, who interposed with an oath? We've got double eternal security. How about that? Infinity times two in uh, our position in Christ. So we take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Yeah, we've got an anchor, all right. That anchor is Jesus, and He's we're in Him, and and the the possibility of losing that is is doubly impossible. 
in the eternal security of what God has promised here. So there's an oath. The second time he makes an oath, it's to the Exodus generation, and this one's an oath of wrath. And this is the one we've been looking at, right? From Numbers 14, verses 26 through 35. And and he takes an oath. Again, he's the God who cannot lie, so he could just say it, and it's eternally true, but he says it, and then he takes an oath to the Exodus generation. Numbers 14, we looked at it, I don't have to reread it because we saw it already. Verses 26 through 35, and then the impact that it has in Hebrews, and we've seen 3.11, we've seen 3.18, the one we haven't seen yet is when we cross over into chapter 4. And so this is not just learn from that example because those guys messed up, okay? Yes, learn from that example because those guys messed up, but also you learn from that example and don't be those guys. Don't you mess up too? Because this same test that they failed is laid at your feet. Pass it. Don't fail it. Don't provoke. So who provoked him? To whom did he swear? Those who were disobedient. So you, you're a redeemed people. Don't be disobedient. Don't provoke him. So we see that they were not able to enter. Look at the end of verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Whose fault was it? Their fault. Their fault. Their unbelief. God was no less faithful because they were faithless. But their unbelief became the hindrance. It became the obstacle. So, chapter 4, let us fear. Okay, We have our own fear of the Lord application. We don't want to be them. They were headed for a, uh, a physical land, surrounded by physical enemies, but they were headed for a land of promise, a land of rest. We're headed to our own rest, far greater than anything Joshua could have given these guys. We don't want to fall through that same example. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, his rest, remember my wrath, my rest, his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And that's the warning. And that's what uh, we're going to be warned about throughout chapter 3, throughout chapter 4, throughout chapter 6, throughout chapter 10. The whole book is warning church-age believers to not die in the spiritual wilderness, but to enter into God the Father's rest. And so he interposes with an oath. Verse 3, for we who have believed. Now we're not talking about a day back in 1973 when you got saved. That's a mistake, okay? Or whatever year you got saved, okay? Think back to that moment when you were no longer an unbeliever and you received eternal life, okay? That glorious phase one salvation, that glorious moment of, uh, of, uh, of, of deliverance, okay? And it's great to think about that, but quit thinking about that in, uh, in verse 3. And when it says, we who have believed, we're not talking about phase one salvation there. We're talking about a redeemed person who is living the word of God. This is experiential. This is the sanctification faith that is required to enter into rest. It's still by grace through faith, right? Getting saved was by grace through faith. Entering into the Father's rest is by grace through faith. 
But this, this is a redeemed person living out the Word of God. By grace through faith will enter into His rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as He said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. When were His works finished? <laughs> Was it day seven? Or was it prior to that? When in the Father's plan did He have this rest designed? Think about how many tetelestai moments God has truly had. Not only on the cross when Jesus said it is finished, but think about uh, day six when He said it is finished and He rests on the seventh day, but think about other it is finished statements that He makes, like the foundation of the world. And how about in the future at the great abdication, the omega moment, when the Son delivers up the kingdom to God that God may be all in all? You talk about an it is finished moment. Then comes the end. Anyway, there's several, and uh, categorizing them is useful. So, again, I swore in my wrath they should not enter rest. The, the taking of the vow is significant. And when he makes his uh, promise to Abraham, when he makes his promise to the exodus generation, the third time is to Jesus in Psalm 110 and verse 4. It's an Old Testament oath. The God who cannot lie has three circumstances in which he takes a vow. The third one is Psalm 110 and verse 4. Psalm 110 and verse 4. We're familiar with Psalm 110. Well, I think so because we um, we've dealt with the early verses in chapter one and chapter two. We've dealt with the early verses. We've got some of the later verses still coming up, where the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." We've dealt with that. That's that has an impact in Hebrews. This is the session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So when His present session in heaven is complete, He's going to go forward and conquer, and He's going to rule in the midst of His enemies. We call that the millennium. Ruling in the midst of His enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's not the millennium. That's the fullness of time. That's after the millennium, the new heavens and new earth, with His people volunteering freely. No more enemies in verse 3. In holy array from the womb of the dawn. Wow, there's some doctrine. Your youth are to you as the dew. And so what starts happening with new generations that are born after the millennium? Anyway, then verse 4, look at this. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Now, of the three times that God takes an oath, this is the third and final one, and this is the one that specifically says, will not change His mind, okay? I don't, he's not going to change His mind for the Abrahamic covenant. He's not going to change His mind for the uh, Exodus generation, but you have to wonder, what might He have done had they repented? Who knows? In any event, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll get to that. That's a whole theme. That's all from chapter 7 to the end of the book of Hebrews is the Melchizedek priesthood. But think about it. Sit at my right hand. He doesn't say that with an oath. 
you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he swears that with an oath. All right? He swears that with an oath. So the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's the oath. And it's going to come up. The author of Hebrews is going to make a big deal out of this. Hebrews 7 and verse 21. And uh, starting in chapter 7, we start to have this priesthood uh, message. Uh, If indeed his audience are themselves Levitical priests that uh, crossed into the church age after Pentecost, then then, uh, this this passage is going to be huge for his audience as uh, he shows a priesthood that's greater than the Levitical priesthood. And the whole chapter is about Melchizedek and how he's a a shadow and a type of Christ and and uh, how Levi paid tithes to uh, Melchizedek because Levi was in the loins of, a- of Abraham when Abraham gave a tithe to, uh, to uh, Melchizedek. How uh, in verse 11 of Hebrews 7, guess what? Perfection doesn't come through the Levitical priesthood. And that's a very pointed reminder, especially if in their apostasy, this crowd's going to go back to their Levitical priesthood. Right? And we've got, we have a lot of apostasy doctrine coming up. We're going to talk about what is apostasy uh, back then and what is apostasy for us today and what apostasy is not, losing your salvation. But apostasy is uh, departing from the, uh, the doctrine of, of the New Testament. That's apostasy. And they were on the verge of going back to the law and the Levitical priesthood. And he said that didn't make anybody perfect. So uh, now we've got a priesthood, and there's a new law, the law of Christ, and the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. And uh, clearly, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, verse 14. There's a tribe that never had anything priestly spoken about him. And so what is this? What is this? And how did Melchizedek even become a priest? So uh, verse 15, Hebrews 7, 15. Are you all with me still? Hebrews 7, 15. It is clearer still. So it's evident that from the tribe of Judah, Jesus was not going to be a Levitical priest. That's evident. And it's even more evident, clearer than that, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Guess what, folks? That's us. That's Jesus first and foremost, the apostle and high priest of our confession. But you know what? We too have that indestructible life. We share that same priesthood in Christ. Every one of us. Not just some, you know, Roman Catholic priest that can mediate for us. We're all priests. We all have that indestructible life in Christ. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. You know, why are we going to keep Mosaic law around? Why would we keep Levitical priesthood around? What did that ever accomplish? And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Inasmuch, and as if that's not enough, right? The law made nothing perfect, so why would we keep this Levitical thing up and running when we have the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ? And as if that's not enough, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed 
they indeed became priests without an oath. Did God swear, you know, to Aaron, you know, as I live, declareth the Lord, thou art a priest? No. The oath came to Messiah. The oath came to the Lord said to my Lord. Okay. So they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And then the rest of the chapter and chapter eight, the rest of the book is just a celebration of what it means to be a royal high priest in Christ. What you and I get, what you and I, how you and I function and operate. So long as we're not carnal, so long as we're in fellowship, so long as we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We get to operate in our priesthood as the temple of God. Isn't that glorious? So I'm teaching this book. It's powerful. I love this stuff. All right. So as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Keep in mind, the wrath of God did not revoke or undo redemption. He doesn't say, as I swore my wrath, I will restore them to their bondage. Never. As I swore in my wrath, I'm sending them back to Egypt. I'm reparting the Red Sea. And uh, maybe while I'm at it, I'll bring back those dead Egyptians from the bottom of there. And then I'll push the Jews back through there in a reverse direction. Are we clear on this? Revocation of redemption. It's not possible. The wrath of God did not revoke or undo redemption. Instead, what does he do? He expressed his displeasure. With whom was he angry? He expressed his displeasure for a redeemed people through the denial of special blessings in time. Through the denial of special blessings in time. They have a rest they could have had in time. We're not talking about going to heaven when you die. We're talking about being a redeemed people in a place of rest. And not just any old rest either, the Father's rest. That's going to be key. Because I think people redefine what they mean by rest. You know, I think rest, I think no problems, no testings. Okay? Rest and relaxation. And I emphasize the relaxation part of (laughs) R&R. Right? No, the Father's rest. What's the Father's rest? So the expressed displeasure is for a redeemed people who never stop being a redeemed people but a people under the judgment of God who don't receive the special blessings in time they otherwise could have had. And it's the same thing today when believers are not walking by faith as New Testament believers. They never receive the faith rest. They never enter into the faith rest. That should be our daily normal. Absolutely should be our daily normal. We should be in the land of promise, not wandering in the wilderness out here in our carnality. 1 Corinthians 10.15, or 10.5. This is Paul's doctrine in 1 Corinthians 10. Pericope heading at the top of the chapter says, avoid Israel's mistakes. Well, yeah, because ours would be worse. 
Their rebellion was within the realms of shadows. Our rebellion would be in the realms of substance. And uh, our accountability is that much more severe. 1 Corinthians 10.1 I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All the Jewish uh, forefathers, every last one of them was redeemed out of Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Okay? This isn't about who's going to heaven or who's going to hell or who was going to go to heaven, but not anymore because now I'm mad at you. Okay? Yeah, how trivial and childish and stupid that is. He's taken a vow. He's obviously approaching this on a very serious basis. The consequence is not revocation of redemption. The consequence is a life in the wilderness. And you know what? He didn't just strike him dead that very moment. They had to live 40 years seeing his faithfulness. 40 years of not being in the rest. 40 years of tents and sand and dirt and scorpions and whatever else. 40 years of wilderness. You know, I mean, we talk about the, the, the uh, sin and the death. You know, I think it's worse than the sin of death is 40 years in the wilderness. You know, at least if God killed you now, you could go home and get something at the judgment seat of Christ. How much are you going to throw away over the next 40 years of carnality? Living in the wilderness of a, uh, of a uh, non-faith life instead of the faith rest life. So with most of them, God was not well pleased. See, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we're going to get that. That's the whole impact in Hebrews uh, 11 and 12. So, as long as we're clear. Now, my rest, like my works, my ways, my wrath. You see the my, my, my throughout this whole paragraph? My, my, my. And it's startling to me because humans read this and they translate it over. They don't view this as the Father's wrath, they are the Father's rest. They view this as their definition of what, it, what, what they think rest ought to be. Well, guess what? It's not going to heaven when you die. The rest is here and now. The rest is stability in your thinking, in your soul, here and now. The rest is a true divine viewpoint appreciation for what God is doing here and now. It has nothing to do with what is going to happen after we die and go to heaven. My rest, like my works, my ways, my wrath. And so it's all throughout this. And um, so um, verse 9, you have... Uh, your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years, observing what only God can do for 40 years. He fed them with manna for 40 years. Their shoes never wore out. For 40 years, he sustained them. They saw that. And uh, verse 10, they did not know my ways. You would think that a people that were walking with the Lord for 40 years could get to know him. 
Most of them didn't. So, my works, my ways, my wrath, my rest. It personalizes the blessings that Israel forsook. My rest personalizes the blessings that Israel forsook. Not some generic concept of rest. All right? Not something that would enter into our mind when we think rest. Not something that Israel might dream of in terms of rest. But what God determines when God talks about rest, if God uses the term, what is He talking about? What does God think when God thinks rest? Specifically, the very rest that God Himself experienced, enjoyed, and enjoined. Experienced, enjoyed, and enjoyed. Enjoined. I mean, commanded. All right? (laughs) But commanded doesn't start with an E. Experienced, enjoyed, and enjoined. Did God have to rest? On that seventh day, I mean, was he just so tuckered out? Was he just so, yeah, okay? I mean, goodness, he made those everything in six days, including Adam. Did he make Eve on the sixth day? Ooh, there's a question for Wednesday night. So many people pack everything in that sixth day, including the naming of the animals and all the other work and Adam's looking around and not finding a helpmate suitable for him. And then I don't think Eve was there on day six. Day seven, God rested. Day eight, God went back to work. Adam went to work, started naming the animals. Anyway, that's a different message. But when we think about it, it is the very rest God himself experienced. He says it's my wrath. And when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, 3, 4, 5, 10, and 11. Am I going overboard on the proof texts? Or if there's a point God makes six times in a chapter, maybe it would behoove us to make that same point six times in a chapter and pound it home, pound it home, pound it home, right? Pound it home, pound it home, pound it home. Six times. And so... Hebrews 4.1, therefore let us fear, us, right here, right now, today, you and me, let us fear. Fear of the Lord and a fear of dying in unbelief, of dying in the wilderness, of not entering into faith rest in our spiritual walk. While a promise remains of entering His rest, look at that, it's His rest. Any one of you, yes, you, may seem to have come short of it. That's verse 1. Verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. And what's that rest? My rest in verse 3. That rest which is my rest, just as he has said. That's verse 3. Verse 4, as he had said somewhere concerning the seventh day, (laughs) you know, I really, if you're that rusty on Scripture that you don't know it's in Genesis chapter 2, okay, anyway. Um, you probably haven't done much scripture memory. I don't, I don't know. But he says somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again on the passage, they shall not enter my 
rest. And so it's being linked, and it's God's rest. Well, what was God's rest? What did He do on the seventh day, and why? What should we be doing today? Day after day, as long as it's called today, we should be doing what God did on that seventh day. What was He doing? All right. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Uh, so let's see, he again fixes a certain day, uh, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this, this, by the way, is how we can prove David wrote Psalm 95. Nothing in Psalm 95 tells us that, but Hebrews 7 tells us that. David said, David wrote Psalm 95. And for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is, us, church-age believers, in our stewardship. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And that's the whole secret right there. I gave it away. We'll get there when we get into chapter 4. But when you want a practical, how do I enter this rest lesson? That's it. Copy the Father. So let us be diligent to enter that rest. You mean it's not automatic? It's not an easy thing? It requires work? Well, who wants to do that? You mean it takes work to enter rest? Be diligent to enter that rest. So that no one, and that includes you, yes, no one gets an exception to this, No one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. See, with most of us, God may not be well pleased if we are disobedient. If He expects more of us, judgment begins with the house of God. We are more accountable. And so if we don't walk by faith, if a redeemed people with two canons of Scripture, a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon, if if a redeemed people doesn't walk by faith to live the Word of God out, in a daily faith rest, what are we doing? We're provoking him to wrath. And we're not going to enter into that rest. We're going to die in our own wilderness. A wilderness of our own making. So, live the Word of God. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's going to pierce as deep as it needs to pierce. Sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Live your Christian walk according to the Word of God. Walk by faith and day after day as long as it's called today you will enter that rest. The rest is living in the Word. Living in the Word day by day, that's our rest. Day after day as long as it's called today. So the warning, back to 3.12, Take care, brethren, all of y'all, everybody, right? Are we not holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling? Take care. And if you want, just restate that language. Just copy it from verse 1 and put it back in verse 12. Verse 12 is just an abbreviated form of verse 1, but it's useful to remind yourself, take care, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You're a believer, you can still have an evil heart, and you do still have an evil heart. You've got two hearts now. 
You got your old heart and you got your new heart. Which one are you going to operate out of? You have two natures. Your old nature in Adam. You see, the day you got saved, that thing wasn't buried. Nothing whatsoever happened to the old man when you got saved. God just gave you a new man to beat it. You got a new man now. And now you got an option. Which coat do you want to wear? You're going to put on the the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust? Or you're going to cast it aside and say, no thanks, I want to put that old thing back on again. It's nasty, it's full of holes, it stinks, it's vile. But you had it for years and you love it. You love the smell, you love the feel, you love how it looks. Okay? Now get rid of it. Quit putting it on. Now you can't bury it until you bury the the body. Then your soul goes to heaven and all you got after that is just the new nature after that. So a physical death or rapture, your new nature goes to heaven and you finally get to leave that old nature behind. As Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? We have these two natures. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to come back and follow up with this. See, you can be a believer and not believe. A person can believe in some aspect while retaining an unbelief he needs help with as well. The unbelief of the believer. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important doctrine. So you're a believer. You got saved in 1973. Great. Happy for you. You've been a believer for 45 years now. Almost. November makes 45 years. Well, are you walking by faith today? Or do you have some unbelief hang-ups? Some unbelief issues? There are aspects of unbelief that remain that have to be worked out by the Word of God. So we're going to open with this next week. I love the Mark 9, 24. The man says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And I tell you, that could be any one of us every day of, of the week. Right? What is it, what aspect of unbelief do I retain that needs help? And probably several, not just one. If you're down to your last hang-up, good for you but that means you're down to your last days on this earth. Okay? Because those, those aspects of unbelief is what he's working on. And we've got to walk by faith. And even if it's still, even if I'm honest about it, saying, Lord, I'm struggling with this, but I'm going to walk by faith and trust you until you choose to resolve it. In the meantime, I don't have any answers, but Father, I, I trust you. And that's my rest day by day. Unbelief is the failure of the Exodus generation to enter that rest. Unbelief is our failure to enter that rest. The unbelief of the believer. So we're going to tackle that. The new heart that we receive in Christ does not eradicate the old heart we had in Adam and still have as believers today. Daily volitional choices must be made as to which heart we put on. Which heart are we going to put on? The presence of an evil, unbelieving heart does not indicate a loss of salvation. So every Calvinist or Arminian or any, anybody that points that out to you and says, see, look at that. There's an evil, unbelieving heart. They're, they lost their salvation. Or they were never saved to begin with. Stop them right there and say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. 
Because the, the new heart we receive in Christ does not eradicate the old heart we had in Adam. And just make them accept that. Don't even proceed beyond that in the conversation until they get this. And show them these verses. We're going to spend next week in these verses. Because it says, take that off, put that on. And we've got to do that daily. If we don't, we put that old coat back on again. And we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do, but the flesh sure wants to do it, so here we go. Okay, buckle up and here we go. We're back on that roller coaster again. So the presence of an evil, unbelieving heart does not indicate a loss of salvation. It indicates that here's a redeemed person not using the doctrine he's supposed to be using, not walking by faith. He's gone back to his vomit. And we'll define apostasy for you. Apostasy is a departure from God's living presence, God's service, and God's fellowship. It's not a loss of eternal life. How long is eternal life? Trick question. Eternal cannot be lost. Okay? So, don't skip next week. That's the slide we're going to look at next week. And uh, we're going to spend some time with it because I think it's vital. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we've gone long this morning, but I thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Father, thank you for teaching us this doctrine. I think it's important doctrine and, and foundational to our Christian walk. Are we going to stay in fellowship or go out of fellowship? Are we going to confess, be restored to fellowship? And as we are in fellowship, Father, how does this, what, what, what is the expression about putting on a new heart versus the old heart and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? There's several idioms. We want to know each one for what it is and understand it all comes down to spirituality versus carnality and how we, how we keep short accounts and how we walk in the light. Father, that's the secret here. That's the key. So we want the blood of Jesus Christ to keep on cleansing us from all sins. Father, we want to have fellowship with you and with your son. And on this basis then, Father, we are in that priesthood, in that holy of holies, functioning in our indestructible life. So thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.